Thank you, Andrew and Owen. So grateful to have guys who will fill in and lead us in song. Well, it is that time of year as we look back on the previous year and we look forward to the coming year that we often set goals, we often set resolutions. Uh, maybe you even sit down and, and write some things out on paper. This is a good thing to do, I believe. This is uh, good to set goals that honor and glorify the Lord. Even better when you seek to, to attain those if they do honor Him. And in that thought today, as we consider what we're planning to do this next year, I want to give you uh, five resolutions, Christian resolutions, that I hope that you will take home and apply individually to your life. Actually, I'll give you ten between this Sunday and the next, but five this week and five the next. But I hope that today you'll be able to take these and you'll be able to think about them and come up with your own strategy at accomplishing them, because I think you'll agree they are godly goals, godly resolutions to have. Just to get our mindset around this idea of of striving for godliness, I want to read with you 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 24 through 27. I'll not be be expositing the passage as I normally do on a Sunday where we read a passage and then I exposit it and apply it. Uh, This is more of a theological or you could say topical message, although that term gets thrown around a lot. But we're going to be looking at... uh, what it means to have resolutions for the Christian. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, we'll get our minds set around this. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one received the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Lord, Father, we ask that you might help us to strive for godliness. Even today, as we hear this message and apply it, I pray that you will work in the hearts of and the minds of each one of us here today to to take these truths and work them out in our life over the next year and continue to do so as we grow in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will give me uh, a clear speech, that you will give me uh, the ability to open up these truths a bit this morning so that we might understand them better, and then we might apply them individually. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the passage I just read, did you catch some of the the language that Paul used there? He said things like, we must run, run to win the prize. What is the prize? Well, the prize is uh, eternity with Christ, you could say, or, or heaven. And you could uh, call it, Uh, eternal salvation. We're not earning our salvation by running this. But once we've been justified, we're expected by God to grow in sanctification. 
Every person will grow in godliness, even the thief on the cross, with what he said as he died was evidence, good fruit, that he was being sanctified even for a short amount of time. But notice here, as Paul speaks, he he uses words like, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. The point he's making is, I'm not just wasting time here as a Christian. I'm not just doing these things for the fun of it. I'm not just going about my growth and godliness as if it's no big deal. He has a specific purpose, a specific aim. And I think that's one example we see in Scripture of of Paul being resolved to do something. Other places he says that he has purposed, or in the ESV it even says resolved, to go to such and such a place. By the Spirit's leading, he was determined to go to Jerusalem by Passover. And even in the Old Testament, we see men of God like Daniel being resolved not to eat the meat that comes from the king, just to eat vegetables. We see different times in Scripture where men, and we could assume also women of that time, made a certain goals, or we might call them resolutions. Areas to improve their growth in holiness. I hope you have some of those already for the next year. There are many areas of our life that we could set goals and make resolutions. I'm just talking today more of the spiritual realm or your growth in godliness, the spiritual disciplines of the faith. And as long as these resolutions are not sinful, as long as they're not against the will of God revealed to us in Scripture, and as long as we're willing to change them if God closes a door on us, which He often can do, then they're good. It is a good and godly thing uh, to make plans to grow in Christ. Probably the most famous resolutions that you may have heard of are Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions that he made. The famous preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, at the age of 18, wrote down 70 resolutions. If you go and look them up, you'll be surprised that an 18-year-old would come up with such things. But he was determined to live for God's glory. And he spent his life trying to live out those 70 resolutions. I'll just read his preamble. Gives us a sense of what he was thinking. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So Edwards is saying that he's not striving of his own power. He's reminding himself that this is a spirit working in him, that it is God's grace. And as a Christian, I want you to understand that when we talk about growing in godliness, again, we're not trying to earn anything from God. We cannot earn his grace or it's not grace anyway. It is grace is completely given without any works of our own. But again, we are expected to grow with the spirit's power as Christians. And that is what Edwards gets out in his preamble. He continues the next sentence. He says, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. He had 70, and some of them were paragraphs long that he would read over every week. I'm just giving you five today, and hopefully you'll take notes somewhat on those five so you can read over them regularly, five next week as well. This week, we're looking at five that apply to the individual Christian life. And then next week, how you are 
with the church body, what kind of resolutions should you make as a member of a church body, a local church? More corporate resolutions. So starting with number one, again, I hope you're taking notes because you can review these. I'm just going to read them as I would write them for myself. And then you can apply them in your own language if you like. Resolution number one. In 2018, I will read my Bible with the aim of reading it completely in one or two years. I gave you guys a little bit of of, of leeway there, a little wiggle room. If you don't like the one year, then you can do the two years. I'll read it again. In 2018, I will read my Bible with the aim of reading it completely in one or two years. The whole Bible in one or two years. Listen to Edwards again here. His resolution number 28, he said, Resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and even plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. He was committed every day. Yes, he was a pastor. Yes, he was a a theologian of his time. But we can all look to this resolution and, and, and apply it to our life. We must be in God's word regularly. We must be. It is a mark of the Christian life. In some way, we've got to be in taking his holy word. How many Christians have been believers for years? You don't have to raise your hand. How many Christians have been believers for years but never read the whole Bible? This was me. I went to a church that did not emphasize the Bible for some years as a Christian early on. And then I realized one day, I've been a Christian for seven years and I've never read through the whole Bible. That was a little bit embarrassing. I didn't tell anybody that. I just found a plan to read through the Bible in a year and I got after it and I grabbed my wife to join me and we did it together for a couple of years. We read the whole Bible in a year. So if you haven't done that, you have to consider doing that in the next year. I would encourage you to do it. I'm not going to say that you're commanded to read it in a 12-month or 24-month period of time. But I think God wants you to read His Word. He gave us a book. He did not give us a series of movies. He did not give us a a website. He did not give us pictures. He gave us the written Word. And that was all in His predestined plan to, to have it written down at a certain time for God's people along the way to read and grow and know Him. And we've got to dive in. And we've got to ingest it. We've got to to take it in. Speaking of the Old Testament, here's what Paul says in Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. He's speaking of the Old Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You want to persevere in the faith? You want to be encouraged by Scriptures? You've got to read what's instructed there you have to read the old testament and the new but all they had in paul's day was the old testament jesus when rebuking the devil said man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god how do you live as a as a follower of christ as a follower of god even old testament saints live by the word of god now they didn't have access to it like we do they had to go to synagogue or go to the temple to hear it, or find some scrolls that somebody might have. But as uh, publication of the New Testament and the Old became more and more popular, and and now the printing press, we have how many Bibles at home? 
individually. I mean, I think each person in my family has a couple of Bibles. There's a Bible in every room, it seems like. We have so much to make it easy for us to read God's Word. Psalm 119 speaks of the many benefits of reading God's Word. Just read through Psalm 119. A couple of examples. The writer says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. You want to behold wonderful things from God's word? You have to to read it. You have to have your eyes open by the Holy Spirit to understand it and then take it in. And verse 11 of Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Growth in holiness is is a, a reduction of your sinful lifestyle and a reduction of specific sins in your life. And you read God's word to help you with that and to to help you fight that. Peter gives a command and a warning when he writes this. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Long for it so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You're going to grow in respect to your salvation by longing and taking in the word. And then he puts this at the end as a warning. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now notice he says long for it. You've got to have a strong desire is what that word means there. You've got to yearn for it. Like a baby cries for his mother's milk. That baby doesn't. And we know because we have this at home right now all the time. Sometimes at night. The baby's crying and nothing will satisfy that child except his mother's milk. And we as Christians have to be like that with God's word. We have to long for it and desire it so much that we've got to have God's word in us. You should actively seek it. You should actively desire it, Peter says. But if you don't, he says, there's something to be concerned about. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you've tasted some of God's grace, then you will want his word. In other words, if you've been saved, then you'll want to read the Bible. This doesn't mean you'll want to read for five hours a day. This doesn't mean that you'll want to go to seminary and learn all that you can about the Bible. But you'll have some appetite for God's Word. As Bible-believing Christians, we've got to to read it. We've got to know it. We've got to obey it. And you've got to learn the overarching story. This is why I say uh, read God's Word in a year. I think that's doable for most of you. But you can stretch it to two. There are plenty of plans out there, by the way. I'm not going to give you one today, but you can go online. You can find uh, the Machine plan where you read four chapters a day and other plans that get you through the Bible in a year. There's even a plan that gets you through the whole Bible in 90 days. If you'd really like to spend some time each day with God's Word. But we've got to see the overall picture. That's one of the benefits of reading Scripture regularly is that we're not just focused in on one passage or a few verses that are kind of floating around our Christian culture, or even a certain book of the Bible that we prefer. But we're looking at God's overall story, His overall plan, His overarching plan of redemption, His overall arching plan to to redeem a people through Christ for His own possession, so that they might rule over the earth in His image. These are things that start in Genesis 1, and they They finish at the end of Revelation. You know that two-thirds of your Bible that you're holding in your hand, two-thirds of it is made up of the Old Testament? How many of us have read through the whole Old Testament? I'm not saying that you enjoy reading everything there, the genealogies or or 
some of the awful sins that we see committed by the nation of Israel. But they're there for a lesson. They're there to instruct us, Paul says. And there's two-thirds of our Bible that many of us have not read, and many of us have not studied or even dipped in. So reading through the Bible will help you grow in godliness in 2018. Uh, The Christian life is about learning what God wants us to do in Christ. And how can you learn that and not apply it? The Christian life is both learning and applying. See, sometimes these days we just want to apply. Pastor, just give me exactly the thing to do. Give me a list of five things I need to go do. The problem is you need to see it in God's word. You need to understand what God's word means, and then you need to apply it in your life. Knowledge comes before application. Exposition, as I'm preaching, comes before application. And that's the way we need to do it in our own lives. So read the Bible to know how to live, to know what to believe. And it's not just for preachers, and it's not just for super Christians. I did this before I even uh, wanted to go into ministry. This is something that every believer should be doing, reading regularly, and I think it's good to have a goal to read through the whole Bible every year or every two years. If you know how to read, then you really don't have an excuse, do you? And all of us, I think, know how to read. If you did not know how to read, then maybe you have an excuse, but guess what? Then you would learn how to read, so you can read the Bible. In fact, throughout church history, They often went in and taught people, and they still do in mission field, taught people how to read English so they could read the Bible. I mean, if you seriously think you don't need to read the Bible as a Christian, what would be the reason for that? Do you think that you already know everything that's there? I've I've been a Christian for many years now, 17 years, and I've gone to seminary, and I still just know a fraction of what's in the overall Bible. Now, I know generally what's there because I've been reading through it, but There is so much there. Guys can read it and women can read it their whole lifetime, 80, 90 years, and not get all that's there. It's a a continual tree that's giving us fruit forever and ever. So if you don't think you need to read the Bible, you have to deal with your own sin of, of pridefulness. That's just prideful to think that I already know everything that's there, so I'm just going to set it aside and and not read what God has to teach us. Jesus said, man has to live on the bread of God. And Jesus was a man. He was the God-man. But how often did Jesus quote Scripture? You can imagine growing up as a boy, he was learning Scripture. He was memorizing it. And here's the, the, the very Son of God who wrote Scripture. Try to figure that out, how he was learning it at the same time that he really already knew it with his divinity. Are we better than Jesus, though, that we don't need to read our Bibles? Let's dig in. Let's make plans in the next year to read through the Bible, to get the overall story. And if you've already done it once, twice, however many times, excel still more. Do it again and again and again every year. This is what Psalm 1 has to say. How blessed is the man or woman. But notice it doesn't say how blessed is the the preacher. How blessed is the elder. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. He goes on to describe what we should not do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That's not a passage for the guy going to seminary or the guy teaching a Sunday school class. This is for every follower of God. We must 
Delight in the law of the Lord. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you read through the Bible for 10, 20, 30, 40 years? How much more will you know and hopefully have applied as a Christian when you do that? So I hope you'll make that your first resolution for next year. Number two. Resolution number two, in 2018, I will have fellowship with God through prayer regularly and for extended time periods. It's only going to get harder as we go down the list, guys. Uh, The Bible reading, if you thought that was hard, it's going to get harder. But you know what? Paul said run as if you're running to win the prize. This isn't supposed to be easy. Number two, in 2018, I will have fellowship with God through prayer regularly and for extended time periods. To grow in godliness, our time here on earth must be filled with a rich prayer life. John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of faith. I listed the Bible as number one, but really prayer and and Bible reading, it's right up there. Bible reading uh, comes, God's word coming to us. Prayer is us speaking to God. And they're pretty much equal in the Christian life. You have to do them both. You should do them both. You're really suffering. It's like you're cutting off your food supply or your air supply if you're not doing one of those regularly. Do you want to be more like Jesus? I mean, we talk about being Christ-like. That's our goal. Do we want to be more like Jesus? How much did Jesus pray? How much did Jesus? He is the very Son of God, and He's spending all these hours praying to God the Father. He was a man of prayer. In the morning, he often slipped away, the Bible says, uh, to have a quiet place of prayer. Sometimes he prayed all night long, fasted and prayed. He, he lived a life continually bathed in intimate prayer with his heavenly Father. What, what is prayer? What was this thing he was doing? How do we define it? Maybe you've heard lots of sermons on prayer, but it's never actually been defined. And there are different ways we can define it, but I'll just say it this way. A prayer is simply a request sent to God. It's it's speaking to God and sending a request. This can be a request of adoring praise. We don't think of that as a request, but it is a type of request. We're, We're praising God. We're just making statements about who He is and how much we love Him. A prayer can be a thanksgiving for God and His plan and blessings. It can be a a confession of our faith in Him or a confession of our sin that we've committed against Him. Prayer is also a petition for His help. That's often what we think of when it comes to prayer, asking God for help. But it's more than that. Intercession on behalf of others. You know, most, uh, they've done surveys, right? Everything in the Christian life has been surveyed by this guy Barna or the Pew Research Center. They found that most Christians don't pray for others. They don't pray on behalf of others. That's called intercession, intercessory prayer. Prayer can also be a submissive commitment to do God's will and many other types of prayers. It's just sending a request to God or just making a statement of praise and adoration towards Him. So why don't we pray more regularly? Why don't we have set times in our life to pray if it's that important? Maybe you do, and I commend you for that, but excel still more. There's a few reasons that we have for not praying. Sometimes people say, I don't feel like praying, so I don't want to do something with God that I don't feel like. I say, go ahead and do it and pray about that when you're doing it, right? If you don't feel like praying, then that's even more of a reason to to ask God to help you. 
God, I don't feel like praying, so help me to pray today. We've all experienced certain days. We've all had times when we don't feel very godly. We don't feel very holy. But that's even more of a reason to pray. It's like not coming to church because you sinned yesterday and you don't want to come here and be around godly people. Only problem is we probably all sinned yesterday. So you're just coming around fellow believers walking together in faith. Pray anyway, even if you don't feel like it. Legalism is another often objection. Uh, I can't, I'm not going to set times to pray. It just needs to come out, right, whenever I feel like it throughout my day. And there's scripture that supports that. Pray without ceasing whenever you feel like it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, never miss an opportunity to pray. There's truth to that. That's one side of prayer. But the other side is it's good to have set times of prayer like Jesus did. He slipped away in the mornings. He, he spent time with the Lord first of all. And people say, well, that's legalistic. The Christian life is not about that kind of duty, but it is about grace. And I would respond, is it a duty to eat three meals a day? Is it a duty to to clean yourself and, and look presentable? Is it a duty to get some sleep, to drink water, to love your spouse? I guess if you consider all those things dreadful duties, then maybe prayer is like that for you. But these things are not just duties, but necessities. You can't you can't survive without eating, and you can't be healthy without eating decently good food. Well, that's prayer life. It's essential as a Christian. It's not just a tiny piece of the Christian life, but as Calvin said, a chief exercise of the faith. Jesus did not say to his disciples, if you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. What did he say? Not if you pray, but when you pray and he's assuming they're going to do it and they're already doing it and he's just helping them to do it even better when you pray you should already be praying this is not legalism it's actually talking with your heavenly father if you have a relationship with somebody try that with your wife by the way that's just legalism to talk to you honey i'm not going to do that i don't want to do something that i just i'm not joyful about it doesn't work well and it certainly isn't going to work well with god Another reason we don't set specific times to pray is that we are distracted. That's probably the most common reason. We're just distracted. Something might happen online and something might happen on our emails. And uh, we've got some television shows to watch and some movies and texting and blogs and Facebook. And by the end of the day, we're too tired after work and all those things. We don't have time to pray. I mean, I might fall asleep in my prayer, which I think God is okay with. I've done that a few times myself. We've got to get alone to pray and get rid of the distractions, though. We cannot bring our phone with all the thousand notifications on it and set it beside us as we're talking with God, because guess what's going to happen? It's going to interrupt us. Uh, We can't put prayer off to the end of the day, and that's, that's the only way it works in your schedule, but I encourage you not to do that. We can't put it off to the end of the day and expect that somehow there'll be enough time, because I don't know if your life is like mine, but things change all day long. And what I thought was going to take five minutes took an hour. And and then a kid needed me. And then, then this happened. And you've got to set aside a time. I encourage you in the morning to get alone with God. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 14, after feeding 5,000 people, sent them all away. Why? So he could go up on the mountain by himself to pray and be alone. He sent 5,000 people away so he could go pray. That's commitment to prayer. That's the kind of commitment we've got to have. We can send a few of our devices and and even get away from people for a bit to pray to our Heavenly Father. So let's make that resolution. 
Let's, let's discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness to pray more. Not just throughout the day, but to have a set time of prayer. I encourage you in, in 2018 to set aside 30 minutes, maybe even an hour. Read your Bible, then pray. That encompasses an hour. It's not going to be easy if you've never prayed that long before. You've got to actually work at it. But you can ask God to help you along the way, and it gets easier every day. So I encourage you, what would your life be like if you spent 30 minutes or an hour every day to pray? I can tell you it'll be life-changing. We had to do that in seminary. We had to pray for one hour every morning and keep a journal and turn it in. So there was no cheating. You hear that, Frank? No cheating when you get to that assignment. And uh, let me tell you, I'd never done that before, and that was challenging. You think, ah, an hour, but every day for four and a half months. It was life-changing, life-changing. All right, resolution number three. In 2018, I will work so that the sin in my life is fought, fought with all my spirit-empowered might. In other words, you're going to work as hard as you can to fight and battle and kill sin in your life next year. I told you it's only going to get harder. This is, if you've got the first two down, hopefully you're not just taking notes, but taking a little quiz in your mind. How am I doing with these right now? I will work on the sin in my life and fight it with all my spirit-empowered might. As men and women born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, God expects us to do war, constantly be in battle with our sin, indwelling sin. Yes, as a Christian, you still have sin. In fact, you better not even deny that because in 1 John, he says, a no true believer denies that they sin sometimes. That's a mark of an unbeliever to go around saying you don't sin. We got to do battle with it. It's indwelling. It remains in us. And to grow in Christ's likeness, to be holy as he is holy, we've got to be set apart from sin and set apart from the world of sin. Paul speaks to professing believers. I'll give you my biblical proof for this. Paul speaks to professing believers in Romans 8, verse 13. For if, here's the if again, if you're calling yourself a Christian, if you're I'm sorry, he starts off, if you're an unbeliever, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. So the if there is, if you're an unbeliever living according to the flesh, you will die eternally. But if by the Spirit, if you are a believer living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. It's that simple. A, a, A Christian shows that they're a Christian. They're not earning anything. But they're just doing it along the way and it shows that they're a Christian. They're putting to death. They're mortifying sin. They're killing it. Later in Romans 13, verse 14, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. One of the ways you kill something is not to feed it. And you don't make provision for it. You don't say, I'm going to grow in Christ's likeness, but at the same time, I'm going to feed my little pet over here. And let this sin grow so big that it consumes me. What's the, what's the big overarching sin pattern in your life? What, what are some specific sins you want to work on this year? We ought to be always working on all the sins. But there's probably some predominant sin patterns in your life that are still there from your unbelieving days. Some things that you've struggled to defeat. 
And I want you to think about those. What, what are they? How can you make a, a list today and draw up your battle plans? I can't do that for you. I'll, I'll list some things you should think about. But you've got to, to make your own list and you've got to think about ways to defeat those sins. As a husband, are you not being loving to your wife and instead bitter towards her most of the time? As a wife, are you unsubmissive to your husband, angry all the time at him? I'm just giving examples for you to think of. Single people, are you impatient with God? Are you prideful in your independence? Children, do you struggle with the sin of talking back? Do you struggle with the sin of disobedience to your parents? Are you gossiping? Are you slandering? Those are some of the sins that might happen in a family and in a church. Jerry Bridges wrote this book called Respectable Sins. And these are some of the sins that are sort of accepted even within Christianity. I'll run through the list so you can think about what you need to attack this coming year. There's probably some big ones that are standing out to you or will. And you need to go at them and do battle with all of your sin. But those big ones, the, 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 the leaders of the pack, you've got to really fight against. Anxiety and frustration. Here's the list. Respectable sins. Anxiety and frustration. A discontentment. Unthankfulness. Pride. Selfishness. Lack of control. Impatience and irritability. Anger. Judgmentalism. Envy or jealousy. And sins of the tongue. Back to gossip and slander. You can't let these things fester. They're, they're just like a wound. If you let it fester, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. No, you can't lose your salvation, but you can prove that you're not saved by not caring about sins and letting them overtake your life. You've got to do battle with your sin. The Puritan John Owen, he took that verse from Romans 8.13 about putting to death your sin. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And it's just precept after precept of how to kill your sin. You'll get lost in all the things that he gives you to do. But here's what he said. He's, he's not asking a question here. He's, he's, he's telling you, encouraging you, commanding you. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from killing sin. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. If you're not battling your sin, then it's actually winning against you. And you have no idea that that's going on. That's how much of the Christian life that this battle encompasses. You've got to actively be killing sin daily, regularly in your Christian life, or that thing is winning against you. You got to, first of all, I'll give you a list of some things you should do to kill sin. Remember who you are in Christ. Don't, don't, don't come to sin and say, you know, I just can't help it. That's who I am. My parents were that way. I grew up in a town that was that way. I just can't do anything about it. My wife makes me do it. Everybody makes me this way. No, no, no. Remember who you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, what do you have the ability to do? Not sin. I didn't say live perfect, but you have the ability to not sin in a particular circumstance. Adam and Eve had that ability to not sin, then they sinned, and mankind as, as an unbeliever did not have that ability. And once you're redeemed, now Christ with the Spirit gives you the ability to deny that sin. So you got to remember who you are in Christ. Remember what He's done for you. Remember that He's paid the price for you. Remember that He has given you the power to defeat sin. You'll never be 100% successful, but I promise you, you can be more successful than you are now.
Secondly, confess your sin to God. When you're battling sin, you want to confess it to God. Name them specifically. In that prayer class where we had to do that journal after we prayed for an hour, we had to go around these 12 different things. And one of them was confession. So 12 things we had to cover in our hour prayer. And one of them was confession of our sins. And then we typed in the journal entry exactly what we were doing in the prayer. So I would say, I confess my sins, blah, blah, blah. Teacher, every time he would count me off. This was a hard, hard grader. And he would say, you didn't name the sins that you were confessing. And I said, look, Dr. Roscup, I said, I don't even name them to God sometimes. I'm just confessing that I'm a sinner. And I'm, he said, no, you've got to confess your specific sins to God. Just, he already knows them, so just lay them out there and start putting it in your journal each week. And that helped me to just focus on, okay, what are the specific sins that I'm often confessing so that I can pray more about those? Also, look up and memorize passages dealing with your sins. How can you do battle if you're not getting out the sword of the Spirit? You've got to pull out your only offensive ability, the sword of the Spirit, and and pick up some verses that you can use. Also, pray about it. We've already covered that, right? Pray. Then you've got to put it to death. You've got to starve it out. If you sin every time this situation happens, then do your best to make sure that doesn't happen. That situation is not a place that you're in. And if you can't prevent it, then preemptively think of ways to not sin when you are in those situations. Set up a plan. People don't go into war. Just say, I'll see what happens, you know. I've got this massive military might behind me. We'll just show up on the battlefield and see what happens. There's a massive plan in place for everybody to do specific tasks. Your Christian life is no different. You've got to put these things in your life. You've got to put sin to death. So another thing you can do after you put it to death is, is replace it with a sinful, I'm, I'm sorry, replace a sinful habit with a godly habit. You've got to replace that sinful habit with a godly habit. Because if you have victory over that sin today, what's going to happen tomorrow? It's going to try to come back, right? That's the flesh. That's Satan tempting us. You've got to start putting on Christ, putting on godly things and putting off these ungodly things. So replace it. Replace it. By the way, we just mentioned two ways to replace it. Prayer and reading the Bible. Also commit and join a local church so you can be held accountable for your sins and get help with your sanctification from others. That's one of the reasons Christ gave us the church. So that we can receive aid, so we can have accountability with the leadership and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, so we've covered three resolutions. Got two more for you. Number four, in 2018, I will make a greater effort to evangelize unbelievers to show them the way of salvation. I will make a greater effort to evangelize unbelievers to show them the way of salvation. This is my list too. You guys have a list. I have a list. We've got to evangelize unbelievers to show them the way of salvation. As a church, we're called to go into the world and make disciples. But also as individuals, we're called to be ready to give a defense, to be ready uh, to speak of the grace of God in salvation. Listen to Colossians 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Who are the outsiders? Outsiders are unbelievers outside the the body of Christ. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. God has given you an opportunity 
with an outsider, and you've got to make the most of it. Let your speech, here's how you do it. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Evangelism is not a canned mechanism that you can just state these four, five, six things, and poof, the guy gets saved. God's grace doesn't work like that. It's his plan, his time. You're just supposed to convey the message with grace as though seasoned with salt. And pray that God will help you respond to each person in the way that most glorifies him. It's not your job to get them saved. It's not your job to to, to beat them and, and make them bow down and hit them over the head with your Bible. You're just telling them the truth of what Christ has done on the cross and the resurrection and how we're sinners. Go to our website. You can see a, a clear presentation of the gospel there. I preached it as well in many sermons. Now, what exactly is evangelism? Since we're defining things, we define prayer. And now I'm telling you to evangelize. What exactly is it? Because guess what? Lots of misunderstanding in the modern church over evangelism. What is it? It's the proclamation of the truth of the gospel message. And it's done in a manner that declares truth and offers salvation. And it results either, this is not up to you, but this is the result. Either the person is hardened in their heart, or they're saved, or you plant a seed for future harvest. Those are the only three options when you speak to somebody about the gospel. And if you have children, by the way, you ought to be doing this regularly in your home. That's a very easy method of evangelizing there. Here's Spurgeon's definition of evangelism. Charles Spurgeon, one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. It's that simple. You're just telling them, how you came to faith. That's your testimony, if you want to include that. But that is not evangelism. You also need to tell them what the Bible teaches about salvation and how a person can be saved. Too many too many churches, too many Christians have gotten this all wrong. They, they have, they've tried to do evangelism in the non-biblical way. They even think that Sunday morning service is an evangelism service. That's not what the church is defined as in the Bible. The Sunday mornings when believers gather together and they worship the Lord and they're edified and they're built up. Ephesians 4, uh, you can just go through the New Testament and see how Paul speaks to the churches. But you will often have evangelism in a sermon. I will often call people to believe in Christ. We really saw that last week, I hope, as we had many visitors coming and, and hearing of the birth of Christ. But evangelism is... Not the primary role of the church on Sunday morning. It's the primary role of the church as we spread out in our homes and in our neighborhoods and at work. Believers gather to worship God on Sunday. We get built up and then we go out. We continue worshiping God in a sense on our own, but we are also proclaiming the gospel to others. Again, as we define it, it's, it's not living a good lifestyle so that others can see. I hope that you've heard enough of that in recent times to know that that is it's not even true. You cannot explain the gospel to somebody simply by living a good life and never speaking to them. You actually have to use words. Can you believe it? Jesus just showed up and died on the cross and nobody knew what he was doing because he never said a word. That would not be the gospel. We've, we, we should live a godly life because we're commanded to. And maybe that'll attract people to ask us questions. And maybe they'll want to talk to us and say, look, I see that you're behaving differently in this situation. Can you tell me about that? But at some point, you have to use words to talk about Christ and what he's done. His person, his work, 
who God is, his holiness, our sin. You've got to have the gospel to have evangelism. Evangelism is simply telling people about the bad news so that you can tell them then about the good news of salvation in Christ. It's not teaching uh, them all the things in the Bible, all the doctrines you've ever learned, simply telling them about Christ. And it's not just the teaching pastor's job to evangelize either. And, and some denominations and churches, they, they have said clearly that this is only the job of the leadership of the church or special evangelists that have been sent out. No, we're all responsible for that. You saw in Colossians 4, he's speaking to the whole church. Be ready in 1 Peter 3. Be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks, all Christians. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to head up in a whole evangelistic ministry. But when given the opportunity, you are speaking of the gospel and of Christ. New Testament times, Christians evangelized in different places. They went to the temple and they spoke of the gospel. Uh, they, they went to the synagogues and proclaimed the gospel. They went to the jails. They went from house to house. They did it in daily conversations. You know that historians look back on Christianity and say that it would not have spread if the common person hadn't spoken of the gospel to others. It wasn't just the apostles who went out because they planted churches in what? They died. The next generation and the people just grew and grew to the point where they were always telling others the gospel and it continued to spread. So where can you evangelize in 2018 even more? You can do that with children in your home, as I've said. You can do that with your personal conversations with unbelievers. By the way, in our culture, it's not always easy to tell who's an unbeliever because everybody's saved around here, right? Even though they're really not. So you might have to you know, get to know this person and dig in just a little bit. Get to know them a little bit better and see what they actually believe. You can meet with somebody one-on-one for Bible study. Talk with somebody you work with. Consider opportunities that you might have. Uh, We have a a man who goes to the nursing homes and teaches and preaches. Uh, In the past, people have gone to jails and prisons from this church. We don't have that currently going, but somebody could get that up and running. Considering outreach to children after school and outreach uh, to those with special needs, disabilities, door-to-door evangelism. We've done some of that. Always looking for more people willing to get together and do that. Consider starting a ministry outside of here, a ministry and a rehab center, a ministry with a military organization, a ministry at a gym, a Bible study for addicts, a Bible study for divorced people. There are all kinds of opportunities around us. There is a college 15 minutes from here with 30,000 students. Who would like to go down there and evangelize and proclaim the gospel? Volunteer at the Pregnancy Resource Center. These are just some ways you you often uh, can think in your own mind of other ways to evangelize as well next year. Let's make a commitment individually to do even more of that. Number five, last one for today. Resolution number five. In 2018, I will read 50% more Christian books than I did last year to aid my growth in holiness. Now, come on, that's not in the Bible, right? Nobody ever read other books than the Bible in the Bible? Well, Paul did. He tells us in 2 Timothy 4.13, he's writing to, to Timothy, When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Now, pretty much well accepted that he's not just talking about the Bible. The, the, certainly, he's got the Bible, the Old Testament there in mind. He wants them. That's probably the parchments. But there are other books as well. 
There are other things that he's reading. We don't know what they are, but there are other books. And, and he's about to die. This guy in 2 Timothy, this apostle Paul, is about to have his head chopped off. And what does he want? Something to cover up with and a stack of books to read, including his Bible. Including his Bible. Now, the Bible is the most important book. You need to... You need to live in the Bible. You can read many other books, but you live in the Bible, right? You read it regularly. You consume it. You study it. You take it in. But other books are helpful as well. There are many good books in print that can help you grow in your Christian life. And you should be reading them. I'm not saying you have to read 100 books a year or 200 books a year, although some people do. You don't have to read a book a week, but you should be reading. I think a good goal is 50% more than you read last year. Now, that works for everybody except for those who did not read a Christian book last year. You can't read 50% more of zero. So you're really in trouble if you read no Christian books at all last year other than the Bible. But uh, you can make it up this next year by doubling that. Read, read one, read two, read as many as you want, but at least 50% more for those of you who did read a book last year. We have an embarrassment of riches today. I mean, do you know, there was a time in when, when, when people came across the ocean to found our country, they had two books. They had the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. That was about it. The Bible and Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Now look at how much we have. Look at how much we have to aid us and help us in growing in Christ. Come to church every Sunday. Grow as a group in our classes and in our worship. You, you should be doing that. But you need something to, to read throughout the week, to meditate on, to help you grow in godliness. There are many good books in print that can help you with this. Yeah, there's a lot of false teaching. You can't just walk into the Christian bookstore down here and pick up what's on the front shelf. If you do, you're going to probably get some heresy. So the best most theologically rich books, the most biblical books, are not the bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller list and the Christian section on Amazon. You're not going to find them. You have to get some recommendations. You have to follow certain ministries that can help you with that. Here's what Spurgeon said. We, we quote that great preacher Spurgeon again. He read, uh, he read tons of books. This guy had a huge library for his day. He said, we are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to be spending your leisure time is to be either reading or praying. He's assuming you're already reading the Bible. So if you have extra time in your day, which most of us do, all of us really have some extra time, you should be reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. Paul cries, bring the books. Join in the cry. Let, let, let's, let's pray that God will show us some good books to read this year. If you need recommendations, I've got plenty. Lord willing, we'll be able to have some, some bookshelves back here that we can uh, sell some books at cost. If our giving um, enables that this next year, we'll start a small bookstore and I'll be able to recommend specific books for you to go and get. To think about the Christian life, it is a life where somebody disciples you. Now, it cannot be all reading and all online. You've got to have people in your local church doing that. But when you pick up a good book by a trusted teacher, that is another pastor or teacher. Or um, if you're a woman, maybe that's another woman who's grown in godliness and helps you to see more truth. The Holy Spirit's not just given to people in this room. You know that, right? Or Christians today in 2017. You know that the Holy Spirit has been given to Christians since Christ sent the Holy Spirit? 
And there have been gifted teachers along the way that wrote down what they preached and wrote down what they taught. And we can still benefit from that. All these great theologians that we like, where did they get all their knowledge? From the Bible, yes. But they didn't come up with everything that they wrote in their books. It has accumulated over time so that we stand on the shoulder of giants. What subject, here's an idea for you to read in this certain category. What subject of Christianity do you need to grow in the most in 2018? I should have already churned up some areas, right? Your sanctification, your holiness. What sin are you really struggling with? And you've got to do battle against it. There is a plethora of counseling books out there. They're not how to counsel. They're how to help you counsel yourself with a certain sin. Anger, pornography, etc. Maybe it's something uh, that will help you know your Bible better. Some of the resolutions we already covered. Know your Bible better. Pray more. Battle sin. Evangelize. Many books on that that you could read. Biblical doctrine. What theological concept are you struggling with? You know, it, it's, it's frustrating as a, as a preacher to hear somebody say, I'm really struggling with this doctrine. And then you, you talk to them a year or two later and they're still struggling with that doctrine. And you say, what exactly have you done to study this out and look at it? I haven't really done anything. You haven't looked at a passage in the Bible. You haven't consulted some, something else to help you. Under, no, but I'm still struggling with it. Let's let's actually go to these works or ask me or or come to biblical doctrine class. It starts next week. We're studying who Christ is and what he's done. And then we're studying the Holy Spirit. And guess what? We're going to talk about the gifts, speaking in tongues, uh, prophecy. Those will come up in this class. And you can fulfill this resolution right here just by coming to the class and reading those pages every week. See how easy I've made it for you guys? Family and marriage, parenting. I need some... Always help in that area. There's a lot of great books out there. Christian pastors, authors, moms, sanctification and holiness, church history, examples of godly men there in church history. I can tell you that personally, outside of my my salvation with Christ, God did the most work in me through Christian books. Good, trusted men like John MacArthur and and R.C. Sproul and, and John Piper. They helped me understand the doctrines of grace because I was in a church that it was very seeker friendly. And, and suddenly I heard about these things. And where do I go? Oh, I found these guys. Who's this guy, R.C. Sproul? He's got a book on Reformed theology. I got to read that, see what that's about. Found MacArthur, found Piper. I came to understand so much of the Bible because those guys provided a window in. I could not get my mind around these things. They provided a window in. Then I could read for myself and study and see if they were true and accept or reject what I found. The writings of Mark Dever and others help me learn more about what the Bible says regarding the church. And I could just go down the list. So Lord willing, as you go through 2018, you'll find some books or you'll ask me for some or I'll recommend some in passing that you can read. So there's your five resolutions. How are you guys doing so far for 2000? If you just look back, did you, did you have all those five down? You already got them? You can excel still more in 2018. Let's press on. Let's, let's set these resolutions, set more if you'd like, but I think these are five good ones that you can keep. And here's what, again, Paul says in Philippians 3. I'll, I'll read this in closing. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, 
straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The ultimate prize is that upward call of being with Christ forever and ever. But along the way, we're setting miniature goals to accomplish the greater goal. And the way we do that is to grow in godliness. And I hope that you'll take some of these that I've listed today and apply them to your life. Lord, let us grow this next year, not be a a year of stagnation in our personal Christian walk, but a year of, of great glorification of you and what you've done and how you're working in our lives. Paul often prays for the churches that they'll grow in Christ and that they'll grow in his word and that it will be put in our heart. And that's what I pray for us here today. Let us not move backwards, but forwards in this Christian walk. Let us most of all glorify and honor you in all that we do. Help us to do that. Give us the power and the ability. In Jesus' name, amen.